A decade ago, before the Supreme Court eliminated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, in the 2013 case Shelby County v. Holder, it required voting districts with a history of racial discrimination in the electoral process to pre-clear their district maps with the U.S. Attorney General's office. After the completion of the 1990 census, North Carolina was apportioned one extra seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, which meant that North Carolina would have 12 congressional seats going forward, and that meant that their congressional district map had to be redrawn. When North Carolina submitted its first redrawn district map for Section 5 preclearance, the Attorney General rejected it as it provided only one majority black district even though over 20% of their population was black. Had the districts been divided in a way that was representative of the racial breakdown of the population, one would expect that a 20% population of black people would have at least two districts in which they could elect a representative of their choosing. North Carolina's second attempt at the drawing board added another oddly shaped majority black voting district to satisfy Section 5 preclearance requirements. Ruth Shaw and a group of other like-minded Caucasian residents of the new snake-like majority black District 12 sued the United States Attorney General for requiring the creation of a second majority black district in the first place. The question before the court in this case, was whether the North Carolina residents claim that the state created a racially gerrymandered district raised a valid constitutional issue under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The court, divided along partisan lines, said yes. But this case doesn't necessarily end here, because the court remanded back to the lower court and eventually the map was ordered to be redrawn again in 1997, and yet again ended up back before the Supreme Court in 2001 in Hunt v. Cromarty. Since this case went before the court 30 years ago, North Carolina has consistently been caught up in similar legal battles over congressional redistricting. And now... Justice White's 1993 dissenting opinion in Shaw v. Reno. Justice White, with whom Justice Blackman and Justice Stevens join. Dissenting. The facts of this case mirror those presented in United Jewish Organizations of Williamsburg v. Carey, 1977, also known as UJO where the court rejected a claim that creation of a majority-minority district violated the Constitution, either as a per se matter or in light of the circumstances leading to the creation of such a district. Accordingly, they held that plaintiffs were not entitled to relief under the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. On the same reasoning, I would affirm the district court's dismissal of appellant's claim in this instance. The court today chooses not to overrule, but rather to sidestep UJO. It does so by glossing over the striking similarities, 
focusing on surface differences, most notably the admittedly unusual shape of the newly created district, and imagining an entirely new cause of action. Because the holding is limited to such anomalous circumstances, it perhaps will not substantially hamper a state's legitimate efforts to redistrict in favor of racial minorities. Nonetheless, the notion that North Carolina's plan, under which whites remain a voting majority in a disproportionate number of congressional districts, and pursuant to which the state has sent its first black representatives since Reconstruction to the United States Congress, might have violated appellants' constitutional rights, is both a fiction and a departure from settled equal protection principles. Seeing no good reason to engage in either, I dissent. Part 1. Section A. The grounds for my disagreement with the majority are simply stated. Appellants have not presented a cognizable claim because they have not alleged a cognizable injury. To date, we have held that only two types of state voting practices could give rise to a constitutional claim. The first involves direct and outright deprivation of the right to vote, for example, by means of a poll tax or literacy test. Plainly, this variety is not implicated by appellants' allegations and need not detain us further. The second type of unconstitutional practice is that which affects the political strength of various groups, in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. As for this latter category, we have insisted that members of the political or racial group demonstrate that the challenged action have the intent and effect of unduly diminishing their influence in the political process. Although this severe burden has limited the number of successful suits, it was adopted for sound reasons. The central explanation has to do with the nature of the redistricting process. As the majority recognizes, redistricting differs from different kinds of state decision-making in that the legislature always is aware of race when it draws district lines, just as it is aware of age, economic status, religious, and political persuasion, and a variety of other demographic factors. Being aware in this context is shorthand for taking into account and it hardly can be doubted that legislatures routinely engage in the business of making electoral predictions based on group characteristics, racial, ethnic, and the like. Like block voting by race, the racial composition of geographic area, too, is a fact of life, well known to those responsible for drawing electoral district lines. These lawmakers are quite aware that the districts they create will have a white or a black majority, and with each new district comes the unavoidable choice as to the racial composition of the district. As we have said, it requires no special genius to recognize the political consequences of drawing a district line along one street rather than another. Because extirpating such considerations from the redistricting process is unrealistic, the court has not invalidated all plans that consciously use race, but rather has looked at their impact. Redistricting plans also reflect group interests and inevitably 
are conceived with partisan aims in mind. To allow judicial interference whenever this occurs would be to invite constant and unmanageable intrusion. Moreover, a group's power to affect the political process does not automatically dissipate by virtue of an electoral loss. Accordingly, we have asked that an identifiable group demonstrate more than mere lack of success at the polls to make out a successful gerrymandering claim. With these considerations in mind, we have limited such claims by insisting upon a showing that the political processes were not equally open to participation by the group in question that its members had less opportunity than did other residents in the district to participate in the political processes and to elect legislators of their choice. Indeed, as a brief survey of decisions illustrates, the court's gerrymandering cases all carry this theme, that it is not mere suffering at the polls, but discrimination in the polity with which the Constitution is concerned. In Whitcomb v. Chavez, we searched in vain for evidence that black voters had less opportunity than did other residents to participate in the political processes and to elect legislators of their choice. More generally, we remarked, the mere fact that one interest group or another concerned with the outcome of the district's elections has found itself outvoted and without legislative seats of its own provides no basis for invoking constitutional remedies where there is no indication that this segment of the population is being denied access to the political system. Again, in White v. Register, the same criteria were used to uphold the district court's finding that a redistricting plan was unconstitutional. The historic and present condition of the Mexican-American community a status of cultural and economic marginality, as well as the legislature's unresponsiveness to the group's interests, justified the conclusion that Mexican-Americans were effectively removed from the political processes and invidiously excluded from effective participation in political life. Other decisions of this court adhere to the same standards. I summed up my views on this matter in the plurality opinion in Davis v. Bandemer, 1986. Because districting inevitably is the expression of interest group politics, and because the power to influence the political process is not limited to winning elections, the question in gerrymandering cases is whether a particular group has been unconstitutionally denied its chance to effectively influence the political process. Thus, an equal protection violation may be found only where the electoral system substantially disadvantages certain voters in their opportunity to influence the political process effectively. By this, I meant that the group must exhibit strong indicia of a lack of political power and the denial of fair representation, so that it could be said that it has essentially been shut out of the political process. In short, even assuming that racial or political factors were considered in the drawing of district boundaries, a showing of discriminatory effects is a threshold requirement in the absence of which there is no equal protection violation, 
and no need to reach the question of the state interests served by the particular districts. To distinguish a claim that alleges that the redistricting scheme has discriminatory intent and effect from one that does not has nothing to do with dividing racial classifications between the benign and the malicious, an enterprise which, as the majority notes, the court has treated with skepticism. Rather, the issue is whether the classification based on race discriminates against anyone by denying equal access to the political process. Even members of the court least inclined to approve of race-based remedial measures have acknowledged the significance of this factor. Section B. The most compelling evidence of the court's position prior to this day, for it is most directly on point, is UJO, 1977. The court characterizes the decision as highly fractured, but that should not detract attention from the rejection by a majority in UJO of the claim that the state's intentional creation of majority-minority districts transgressed constitutional norms. As stated above, five justices were of the view that absent any contention that the proposed plan was adopted with the intent or had the effect of unduly minimizing the white majority's voting strength, the 14th Amendment was not implicated. Writing for three members of the court, I justified this conclusion as follows. It is true that New York deliberately increased the non-white majorities in certain districts in order to enhance the opportunity for election of non-white representatives from those districts. Nevertheless, there was no fencing out of the white population from participation in the political processes of the county, and the plan did not minimize or unfairly cancel out white voting strength. In a similar vein, Justice Stewart was joined by Justice Powell in stating, The petitioners have made no showing that a racial criterion was used as a basis for denying them their right to vote in contravention of the 15th Amendment. They have made no showing that the redistricting scheme was employed as part of a contrivance to segregate, to minimize or cancel out the voting strength of a minority class or interest, or otherwise to impair or burden the opportunity of affected persons to participate in the political process. Under either formulation, it is irrefutable that appellants in this proceeding likewise have failed to state a claim. As was the case in New York, a number of North Carolina's political subdivisions have interfered with black citizens' meaningful exercise of the franchise and are therefore subject to Sections 4 and 5 of the Voting Rights Act. In other words, North Carolina was found by Congress to have resorted to the extraordinary stratagem of contriving new rules of various kinds for the sole purpose of perpetuating voting discrimination in the face of adverse federal court decrees and therefore would be likely to engage in similar maneuvers in the future in order to evade the remedies for voting discrimination contained in the act itself. Like New York, 
North Carolina failed to prove to the Attorney General's satisfaction that its proposed redistricting had neither the purpose nor the effect of abridging the right to vote on account of race or color. The Attorney General's interposition of a Section 5 objection properly is viewed as an administrative finding of discrimination against a racial minority. Finally, like New York, North Carolina reacted by modifying its plan and creating additional majority-minority districts. In light of this background, it strains credulity to suggest that North Carolina's purpose in creating a second majority-minority district was to discriminate against members of the majority group by impairing or burdening their opportunity to participate in the political process. The state has made no mystery of its intent, which was to respond to the Attorney General's objections by improving the minority group's prospects of electing a candidate of its choice. I doubt that this constitutes a discriminatory purpose as defined in the court's equal protection cases, i.e. an intent to aggravate the unequal distribution of electoral power. But even assuming that it does, there is no question that appellants have not alleged the requisite discriminatory effects. Whites constitute roughly 76% of the total population and 79% of the voting age population in North Carolina. Yet, under the state's plan, they still constitute a voting majority in 10 or 83% of the 12 congressional districts. Though they might be dissatisfied at the prospect of casting a vote for a losing candidate, a lot shared by many, including a disproportionate number of minority voters, Surely they cannot complain of discriminatory treatment. Part 2 The majority attempts to distinguish UJO by imagining a heretofore unknown type of constitutional claim. In its words, UJO set forth a standard under which white voters can establish unconstitutional vote dilution. Nothing in the decision precludes white voters or voters of any other race from bringing the analytically distinct claim that a reapportionment plan rationally cannot be understood as anything other than an effort to segregate citizens into separate voting districts on the basis of race without sufficient justification. There is no support for this distinction in UJO, and no authority in the cases relied on by the court either. More importantly, the majority's submission does not withstand analysis. The logic of its theory appears to be that race-conscious redistricting that segregates by drawing odd-shaped lines is qualitatively different from race-conscious redistricting that affects groups in some other way. The distinction is without foundation. Section A. The essence of the majority's argument is that UJO dealt with a claim of vote dilution, which required a specific showing of harm, and that cases such as Gomillion v. Lightfoot, 1960, and Wright v. Rockefeller, 1964, dealt with claims of racial segregation, which did not. I read these decisions quite differently. 
Petitioner's claim in UJO was that the state had violated the 14th and 15th Amendments by deliberately revising its reapportionment plan along racial lines. They also stated, Our argument is that the history of the area demonstrates that there could be, and in fact was, no reason other than race to divide the community at this time. Nor was it ever in doubt that the state deliberately used race in a purposeful manner. In other words, the analytically distinct claim the majority discovers today was in plain view and did not carry the day for petitioners. The fact that a demonstration of discriminatory effect was required in that case was not a function of the kind of claim that was made. It was a function of the type of injury upon which the court insisted. Gomillion is consistent with this view. To begin, the court's reliance on that case as the font of its novel type of claim is curious. Justice Frankfurter characterized the complaint as alleging a deprivation of the right to vote in violation of the 15th Amendment. Regardless whether that description was accurate, it seriously deflates the precedential value which the majority seeks to ascribe to Gomillion. As I see it, the case cannot stand for the proposition that the intentional creation of majority-minority districts, without more, gives rise to an equal protection challenge under the 14th Amendment. But even recast as a 14th Amendment case, Gomillion does not assist the majority, for its focus was on the alleged effect of the city's action, which was to exclude black voters from the municipality of Tuskegee. As the court noted, the inevitable effect of this redefinition of Tuskegee's boundaries was to deprive the Negro petitioners discriminatorily of the benefits of residence in Tuskegee. Even Justice Whitaker's concurrence appears to be premised on the notion that black citizens were being fenced out of municipal benefits. Subsequent decisions of this court have similarly interpreted Gomillion as turning on the unconstitutional effect of the legislation. In Gomillion, in short, the group that formed the majority at the state level purportedly set out to manipulate city boundaries in order to remove members of the minority, thereby denying them valuable municipal services. No analogous purpose or effect has been alleged in this case. The only other case invoked by the majority is Wright v. Rockefeller. Wright involved a challenge to a legislative plan that created four districts. In the 17th, 19th, and 20th districts, whites constituted respectively 94.9%, 71.5%, and 72.5% of the population. 86.3% of the population in the 18th district was classified as non-white or Puerto Rican. The plaintiffs alleged that the plan was drawn with the intent to segregate voters on the basis of race, in violation of the 14th and 15th Amendments. The court affirmed the district court's dismissal of the complaint 
on the ground that the plaintiffs had not met their burden of proving discriminatory intent. I fail to see how a decision based on a failure to establish discriminatory intent can support the inference that it is unnecessary to prove discriminatory effect. Right is relevant only to the extent that it illustrates a proposition with which I have no problem, that a complaint stating that a plan has carved out districts on the basis of race can, under certain circumstances, state a claim under the 14th Amendment. To that end, however, there must be an allegation of discriminatory purpose and effect for the constitutionality of a race-conscious redistricting plan depends on these twin elements. In Wright, for example, the facts might have supported the contention that the districts were intended to, and did in fact, shield the 17th district from any minority influence and pack black and Puerto Rican voters into the 18th, thereby invidiously minimizing their voting strength. In other words, the purposeful creation of a majority-minority district could have discriminatory effect if it is achieved by means of packing, i.e. over-concentration of minority voters. In the present case, the facts could sustain no such allegation. Section B. Lacking support in any of the court's precedents, the majority's novel type of claim also makes no sense. As I understand the theory that is put forth, a redistricting plan that uses race to segregate voters by drawing uncouth lines is harmful in a way that a plan that uses race to distribute voters differently is not, for the former bears an uncomfortable resemblance to political apartheid. The distinction is untenable. Racial gerrymanders come in various shades. At-large voting schemes, the fragmentation of a minority group among various districts so that it is a majority in none, otherwise known as cracking, the stacking of a large minority population concentration with a larger white population, and finally, the concentration of minority voters into districts where they constitute an excessive majority, also called packing. In each instance, race is consciously utilized by the legislature for electoral purposes. In each instance, we have put the plaintiff challenging the district lines to the burden of demonstrating that the plan was meant to, and did in fact, exclude an identifiable racial group from participation in the political process. Not so, apparently, when the districting segregates by drawing odd-shaped lines. In that case, we are told, such proof no longer is needed. Instead, it is the state that must rebut the allegation that race was taken into account, a fact that together with the legislator's consideration of ethic, religious, and other group characteristics, I had thought we practically took for granted. Part of the explanation for the majority's approach has to do, perhaps, with the emotions stirred by words such as segregation and political apartheid. 
but their loose and imprecise use by today's majority has, I fear, led it astray. The consideration of race in segregation cases is no different than in other race-conscious districting. From the standpoint of the affected groups, moreover, the line drawings all act in similar fashion. A plan that segregates being functionally indistinguishable from any of the other varieties of gerrymandering, we should be consistent in what we require from a claimant, proof of discriminatory purpose and effect. The other part of the majority's explanation of its holding is related to its simultaneous discomfort and fascination with irregularly shaped districts. Lack of compactness or contiguity, like uncouth district lines, certainly is a helpful indicator that some form of gerrymandering, racial or other, might have taken place and that something may be amiss. Disregard for geographic divisions and compactness often goes hand-in-hand with partisan gerrymandering. But while district irregularities may provide strong indicia of a potential gerrymander, they do no more than that. In particular, they have no bearing on whether the plan ultimately is found to violate the Constitution. Given two districts drawn on similar race-based grounds, the one does not become more injurious than the other simply by virtue of being snake-like at least so far as the Constitution is concerned, and absent any evidence of differential racial impact. The majority's contrary view is perplexing in light of its concession that compactness or attractiveness has never been held to constitute an independent federal constitutional requirement for state legislative districts. It is short-sighted as well for a regularly shaped district can just as effectively effectuate racially discriminatory gerrymandering as an odd-shaped one. By focusing on looks rather than impact, the majority immediately casts attention in the wrong direction, toward superficialities of shape and size, rather than toward the political realities of district composition. Limited by its own terms to cases involving unusually shaped districts, the court's approach nonetheless will unnecessarily hinder, to some extent, a state's voluntary effort to ensure a modicum of minority representation. This will be true in areas where the minority population is geographically dispersed. It also will be true where the minority population is not scattered but for reasons unrelated to race, for example incumbency protection, the state would rather not create the majority-minority district in its most obvious location. When, as is the case here, the creation of a majority-minority district does not unfairly minimize the voting power of any other group, the Constitution does not justify, much less mandate, such obstruction. We said as much in Gaffney. Courts have no constitutional warrant to invalidate a state plan, otherwise within tolerable population limits, because it undertakes not to minimize or eliminate the political strength of any group or party, 
but to recognize it and, through districting, provide a rough sort of proportional representation in the legislative halls of the state. Part 3 Although I disagree with the holding that appellant's claim is cognizable, the court's discussion of the level of scrutiny it requires warrants a few comments. I have no doubt that a state's compliance with the Voting Rights Act clearly constitutes a compelling interest. Here, the Attorney General objected to the state's plan on the ground that it failed to draw a second majority-minority district for what appeared to be pretextual reasons. Rather than challenge this conclusion, North Carolina chose to draw the second district. As UJO held, a state is entitled to take such action. The court, while seemingly agreeing with this position, warns that the state's redistricting effort must be narrowly tailored to further its interest in complying with the law. It is evident to me, however, that what North Carolina did was precisely tailored to meet the objection of the Attorney General to its prior plan. Hence, I see no need for a remand at all, even accepting the majority's basic approach to this case. Furthermore, how it intends to manage this standard, I do not know. Is it more narrowly tailored to create an irregular majority-minority district as opposed to one that is compact but harms other state interests, such as incumbency protection or the representation of rural interests? Of the following two options, creation of two minority influence districts or of a single majority-minority district, is one narrowly tailored and the other not? Once the Attorney General has found that a proposed redistricting change violates Section 5's non-retrogression principle in that it will abridge a racial minority's right to vote, does narrow tailoring mean that the most the state can do is preserve the status quo? Or can it maintain that change while attempting to enhance minority voting power in some other manner? This small sample only begins to scratch the surface of the problems raised by the majority's test. But it suffices to illustrate the unworkability of a standard that is divorced from any measure of constitutional harm. In that, State efforts to remedy minority vote dilution are wholly unlike what typically has been labeled affirmative action. To the extent that no other racial group is injured, remedying a Voting Rights Act violation does not involve preferential treatment. It involves instead an attempt to equalize treatment and to provide minority voters with an effective voice in the political process. The Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution surely does not stand in the way. Part 4 Since I do not agree that appellants alleged an equal protection violation, and because the Court of Appeals faithfully followed the Court's prior cases, I dissent and would affirm the judgment below.
we've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.